0: Well, good morning everyone and good morning to those who are watching or will be watching online. It is good to see you all. Uh, It was a bit messy getting here today. Uh, There was a big accident on uh, 75 North. So we may have some people who are stuck in that. Uh, Atlantans struggle just in general on the highways and especially if anything is going on with the weather. So anyway, thank you for being here today. And I uh, have very much appreciated having the opportunity to have Townview be the first um, community to engage uh, this material from the new book, Introducing Christian Ethics. Uh, I'm excited to say that tomorrow is the official release date for this book. Uh, it can be purchased and actually obtained now. Um, and so uh, I'm excited about it, it's been a long time coming. Uh, I want to mention that Jeremy uh, he, here at Townview has been involved in this project from the very beginning. Jeremy recorded more than once all the audio and video material, and um, Jeremy has been on the journey with me in ethics for a really long time, so ask him sometime about what it was like to record these lectures twice. There's a lot of material. So. Um, if you get the book, you immediately have access to um, uh, audio and video lectures as well as the, the book um, in print. So, so today we're going to conclude the series called Why is Following Jesus So Hard? And uh, I'm going to do a little bit of review, but I'm also going to do um, something that um, I've been eager to do, which is to kind of review some of the central convictions Um, that I hold and that are communicated across the length and breadth of this book. In other words, this has been a series on the last chapter, but today it's going to be an overview of the whole argument of the book, which uh, I'm glad to do. So let's go to the first slide. You will remember now, you will be just as sick of the four box diagram as all of my students have been for 20 something years. the series that we have been undertaking has has involved unpacking all four of these dimensions. We're going to look at the last one of these today. But the basic argument is that uh, Christians are, by definition, people who are attempting not just to believe in Jesus, but to follow him. And um, we bring everything we are into that process, including... Um, all aspects of our character, our reasoning, our background, um, all the forces that have formed us, and so over these weeks, we we started off talking about the upper right box called way of reasoning, and we we talked some about um, about the rules and principles and goals and ultimate vision that um, and character qualities that are are supposed to direct the path of a Christian, but also about how our rationality can be misdirected and we can be malformed in our character and things can go wrong when we think they're going right. And sometimes we're the last one to get the memo that we're not thinking very clearly uh, or very Christianly about things. The upper left box called Way of Seeing um, highlighted the fact that, um, that Our moral perceptions are what we bring into every situation. And um, I quoted the, I think it's Confucian quote, 90% of what we see comes from behind our eyes. You know, an an example uh, that one could use right now um, in the Ukraine situation is the Ukrainians and most of the world sees... A sovereign country being attacked by a neighbor. Vladimir Putin sees something different. And, um, and something like a lost province of the Russian Empire that needs to be retaken. Who's seeing more clearly? I have my idea. I think it's the Ukrainians and most of the world. Um, but I genuinely believe that there is a clash of perceptions that helps to shape where we are today. And that's true on almost every moral issue uh, that one could talk about. We bring a perceptual grid to everything in the world. And, um, and that helps to shape um, how we come out. Of course, the argument that I made is that Jesus teaches us ways of seeing that are more healthy, and that if we retrain our perceptions according to the way of Jesus, we will see more like Jesus did, and we will be more likely to follow him faithfully. Um, Last week, we talked about embodied context, and uh, I really had fun with this one. Um, uh, Bona talked about how complex things were once we got to this level. The idea that we are um, not just thinkers, we are embodied spirits and um, our bodily experiences, our memories, our loyalties, our trusts, our passions, our life experiences all go into shaping our perceptions and our way of reasoning. I haven't really talked about the arrows, but do you notice that the arrows are multi-directional, that, that we are shaped and reshaped, life experiences shaping our reasoning, um, embodied context shaping our way of seeing, that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, I, I tried to say towards the end last time that, we must be very much aware of what kinds of loyalties and embodied experiences and so on that we are bringing into our our moral living, into our following of Jesus, and to correct in community for the blind spots that we each have have developed over the course of our lives, that we need each other. Today, uh, we're going to talk about basic convictions. And, Conviction is a really, really important term in theology and in ethics. Let's go to the, the next slide. Um, in uh, the four-box diagram, we talk about basic convictions, about um, some specific areas, what we believe about God and humanity, about forgiveness and discipleship, about likeness what it means to look like Christ, and a just and justice, as well as about the mission of the church. But more broadly, next slide, um, let's define convictions. This, this a definition comes from a Baptist theologian named um, uh, Jim McClendon. Convictions, those central beliefs that we hold that cannot be relinquished without making whoever, us, you, me, a significantly different person or community than before. Convictions, those central, not just any old belief, I like pepperoni pizza rather than cheese or something, but central core beliefs that if we were to abandon them in some fundamental way, we would stop being who we are, okay? Convictions, next slide, are life-defining and can be death-defying. Convictions are those beliefs that are so central that one builds a life upon them, that one might even be willing to die for them if it were required. And um, there are not, it's not every day that we are asked to pay a huge price for our convictions, but some days we are. So, One of the things that I would just say at a basic level to start is that I think a life without convictions, it would be a life without meaning or purpose. Convictions are what we build our life around. Um, People often ask me, well, how do I know what's true? How do I know that what you're teaching is right and what somebody else is teaching is wrong or whatever? Um, And I say, I do not make claims to absolute truth about my own teachings or beliefs, but I do know this. There are certain convictions that shape me that have been developed over many decades that I think are well-grounded and that I would enter into argument on behalf of at any time. These shape me. Um, I think that a lot of people today are no longer sure about what their convictions should be, or if they—if it's even okay to have convictions. Um, there's a a lot of disillusionment and deconstruction of beliefs going on right now in, especially. I mean, it's in American society. It's in culture in general, and I'm noticing it uh, especially among uh, college students and seminary students. Um, there's uh, a phrase that is bouncing around the internet a lot, deconstruction, Um, people say that they're deconstructing what they were taught as children. I no longer believe what mom and dad or what grandma and grandpa taught me or parts of what they taught me. The thing about while deconstruction of convictions that were passed to us by others, maybe it often is an important part of developing our own beliefs, I fear that what's happening for some people is that deconstruction is no longer accompanied or not being accompanied by reconstruction. Um, And I don't know how to have a life that works without having certain core convictions upon which that life is built. And I think part of what is to happen in church, in preaching and teaching, is on a weekly basis or beyond more than once a week, we are articulating and rehearsing for one another the core convictions that are to govern our life as followers of Jesus. Martin Luther said in a famous confrontation where his life was at stake he was on trial for his beliefs and he said here I stand I can do no other so help me God. That's what a conviction is. Here I stand I can do no other. So an interesting question as we think about convictions is, do you have such convictions? Do you have beliefs that are strong enough that if somebody were to push you against a wall and say, um, basically, you know, if you say, like, for example, Jesus Christ is Lord, if you affirm that, I will kill you. Do you have convictions strong enough to risk that? That has happened many times in human history. Um, Convictions don't always have to be at that level, but, but what the bottom box says is that these most definitive, most foundational beliefs are probably going to shape our moral decision making, our ways of seeing, our ways of reasoning profoundly, if things are operating properly. But again, then this leaves the question, what are those convictions? Where did they come from, and are they properly formed? If those core convictions are fundamentally wrong-headed, um, sinful, or contrary to Jesus, then pretty much everything we think will be distorted, and how we live will be pretty messed up. Um, another thing I want to say, and this is very relevant in a Baptist audience or, or any kind of audience that, that has been connected to conservative Christianity, sometimes what conservative religion does is, um, is to define everything as a core conviction. Everything the preacher says is a core conviction. And if you disagree with what the preacher says about one thing, you are a heretic. That's not the vision of community that I'm about. Right? Um, But sometimes people who have been raised in environments like that, they end up with an allergic reaction to any articulation of convictions. You're just being judgmental. Who are you to say we're supposed to do this or that? And um, a a totally post-conviction kind of um, life, I think, is almost impossible. It's certainly squishy. And any of us who have raised kids know that you have to believe in some things. You have to have something to say to your kids about what life is about and how it is to be lived. If you've got nothing, they're not gonna have any structure, at least even to react against. We have to believe some things. And um, can I tell you a funny story? one time, I had a book coming out, and um, the president of my school wanted to praise me, so he, he described me to the reporter, this not-very-bright reporter, um, as a convictional evangelical Christian. Convictional evangelical, so that, meant, that was high praise for him. The reporter didn't know what either of those two words meant, and so in the newspaper the next day, I was described as a conventional, angelical Christian you know, kind of like Gabriel and the archangels, just a very ordinary angelical type of person. So, convictional, you believe in something. You are committed to something. So, conventional, angelical, that's not what what we're going for. Okay, um, next slide. Um, Yes, so I've been arguing that following Jesus involves developing core theological and moral convictions that you live for. That you're willing to pay a price for. And such convictions help us follow Jesus even when it's hard. Next slide. Um, So, what I want to do for the rest of my teaching time today is to tell you some of the core convictions that animate my work and that are in this book. Okay? This kind of takes it from the beginning all the way to the end. And so you get a sense of what I most surely believe. Not Not every one of these beliefs is as grandly significant to me as every other one. But this is, these are the convictions that are articulated in the book. Let me take my watch off so I don't go too long. All right. Here we go. Um, first set of convictions. Christian ethics is a grand enterprise, going back to the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish tradition, that when we ask how should we live, what does the Lord require of us? We are in continuity with the entire Jewish and Christian people who have, who have also asked those questions. Um, another conviction is that part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to consistently ask, what does the Lord require of us? What does faithful following of Jesus look like? Uh, effortful, um, consistent, disciplined questioning of what does it look like to follow Jesus faithfully is central to what it means to be a Christian. Um, a third uh, core conviction for me uh, is that we need access to as many helpful sources to to ground our thinking about the Christian life as we can, and there is a famous um, uh, four-part definition of what those sources are. This comes from Wesley, John Wesley. And the four are scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So um, following Jesus, we to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus, we must be seriously uh, engaged in scriptural study. Um, we also must try to be aware of what the tradition of the church has taught, not that it's infallible, but, but we want to see what the previous conversation looks like in specific areas. Um, we want to use our minds and our, uh, it's not just our minds, but also study what smart people have said about different things. Um, if, if the issue that we're talking about has a scientific dimension, we should listen to the scientists. If it's just about rational thinking, you know, we should use our minds as faithfully as we can. And we should learn from experience, um, both the experience of worship and listening to God in prayer, being in community, but also our life experiences. So Wesley said um, basically that um, good discipleship is shaped by, fundamentally, following Jesus is the central thing. That's the first thing. Um, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we we interrogate Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience to gain insight as to how we should live. Um, the Christian tradition involves both continuity and change. I'm teaching a class right now on the ethics of war, actually, as a war has broken out in Europe. And one thing you find out when you study the ethics of war in Christian tradition is that the conversation is a 2,000-year-old conversation, that in some ways it's the same conversation today when we talk about Ukraine as it was in 1939 when World War II started or 1917 or 1863 or 1275 or however far back in history. There's, um, there's a conversation, um, and disciplined discussion of any moral issue is aware of that conversation. But that would be true in any field, right? If you were a doctor, you don't just kind of make it up today, you, you inherit a tradition. Same would be true in nursing, or education, or any field, right? Next slide. Um, Christian ethics has, a, has a, a, the belief that the God who made us wants us to know his will. And so we believe in a God who speaks, a God who reveals truth, um, a God who wants his people to have the guidance needed to know right from wrong. But also that we, Paul said, I like the King James here, 1 Corinthians, we see through a glass darkly. And that's kind of been the theme of the whole month, that we we are obscured in our vision, in our hearing of what God wants to tell us from a variety of factors. And so we need to work hard at moral discernment. And it is just a fact that uh, another way to talk about ethics is a series of arguments that never end. And so we are entering into arguments in everything that we talk about. Um, Even on the issue of war, the argument between the belief that Christians should be pacifists versus Christians should support war in some cases goes back about 1800 years. So we enter into a series of arguments and arguments and differences are to be expected. So a lot has to do with whether we can have arguments and differences and still remain in community with each other. Next slide. Um, The structure of Christian ethics involves um I use the imagery of a highway in the book picture you want to go somewhere like this morning I, we wanted to get from Tucker to Kennesaw right and so the moral life involves setting goals heading in a specific direction but it also involves um uh having rules that set boundaries in the pursuit of our goals So we wanted to get from Tucker to Kennesaw today, but we were not allowed to go 120 miles an hour because that's against the rules, right? Rules set boundaries and guardrails around the goals that we pursue. And then there's also the category of character, Um, and this has to do with the character of of the, the people who are pursuing these goals and who are attempting to live according to these rules. So goals rules and character are three key terms in Christian ethics. And we wanna be thinking intentionally about all of them. What are the goals we should be striving for? What are the rules that should govern us? And what are the virtues that we want to shape who we are? And ethics deals with all three of those. And there's great tradition on all of these. Next slide. Um, The book proposes essentially six core principles that have emerged in the Christian tradition that set, you might say, our general direction in Christian ethics and in essentially in the moral life. And I think these are beautiful. Um, There's a chapter, essentially, on each of these in the book. And these are, every life is sacred. Um, Another word for this is dignity. Every life is to be treated with dignity, okay? God has declared that everybody matters. Every life is sacred. Um, that love is the highest summary of our moral obligations, love of God and love of neighbor. The reason we love neighbors is because God has declared that every neighbor is infinitely valuable, and therefore we must love them. And if we want to show that we love God, we must love people. A third is justice, and this is essentially... um, building structures of right relationships among people in which everybody is treated justly, fairly, equitably. Um, A fourth is truth. This is an underemphasized one, but the idea is that truth, telling the truth and living truthfully and relating to people in a truthful manner is fundamental to all moral functioning and really all community functioning. If we cannot count on the good faith effort of the people that we are relating to and of ourselves to tell the truth, all community breaks down. Truth is that important. It's that, and I think that theme has been shattered in recent decades and people no longer trust what comes out of other people's mouth. Um, And one of the things I, I discovered in working on this theme Tyrants in all historical periods are always known for telling vast, massive lies. Tyranny and lies go together. Um, Forgiveness. Jesus clearly emphasizes the role of forgiveness, and so one of the core principles that I believe in is that we are called to forgive as we have been forgiven. This has to do also with the fact that, a core conviction of mine, we are sinners and we mess up. If we are unwilling to forgive, there can can be no human relationships because we constantly mess up, right? Our relationships become too brittle. And then the theme of covenant. Covenant um, is a theme that doesn't get its own chapter in this book, but it works its way through the book. Covenants are structures of commitment between people and covenants are most visible like like in marriage relationships but but there are covenants in business relationships as well and there are covenants that are either implicit or explicit even in friendships a covenant is essentially an exchange of sacred promises that or or the the promises that are implicit in a relationship so when you marry somebody, you actually stand in front of a community and you make certain promises and they make promises and God is the ultimate recipient of those promises, but so, are, so is the other person and the community is witnessing. Um, I've talked about covenant in relation to church. I believe that church is supposed to be a covenant community of people who have made certain promises to God, but also to each other. I think that parenting is a covenantal relationship. I promise to behave towards you in a certain way. All the days of my life, if you are a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You know, when a baby is born, it ought to come with some kind of covenant tag on its toe, you know, basically, welcome, and you will be committed to this person for your whole life if you're the parent, right? Um, So think of the richness of these themes, sacredness or dignity, love, justice, truth, forgiveness, and covenant that if we govern our lives according to these six grand principles, we're heading in the right direction, okay? Next slide. <clears throat> um, the, about half the book um, then turns to specific kinds of issues in Christian ethics, and, um, and so I'm just going to touch down on, um, on all of these and give you just brief snippets of what, the, of what I think is a core conviction in the Christian moral life. Um, One is that the creation in which we live has been entrusted fundamentally by God to humans to care well for ourselves and all other creatures. I would also say that there's plenty of evidence that we are not doing a very good job at that and that we have done a great deal of damage to God's creation. It used to be that the concern here was fundamentally about, oh, we have to take care of the species that we are destroying or um, you know, the ecosystems that are so beautiful, we want to preserve them so people can go hunting and fishing and have a vacation and so on. Now um, it's pretty clear that the damage to creation is sufficiently profound that we are damaging the conditions in which human life is undertaken. Um, just as one example, I remember this uh, was something that I, I learned about 15 years ago. Samples of breast milk reveal the toxins that are in our food and drink. So, if we toxify our environment, we literally poison ourselves and our children. So, caring for God's creation is a fundamental norm, not just in the abstract, we want the Beavers to have a nice home, we want the rivers to be clean, but because all life on this planet depends on a livable creation. So there's a lot of work in ethics being done these days on the care of God's creation. Um, secondly, one of the besetting sins, I believe, in human history is to turn human relationships in a hierarchical direction, fundamentally about me or my kind above you and your kind. That can be in the area of race, it can be in the area of gender, it can be in the area of nationality, it can be in the area of sexuality. Um, One of my core convictions is that hierarchical understandings of human relationship, if people's moral vision organizes the world in that way, that is not the way Jesus looked at the world and we should look at the world in a different way. Okay? Closely connected to this is that we must repent of all forms of racism wherever they emerge um, between any sets of people Um, and racism is a major study and major topic in Christian ethics but racism is essentially, you know, know, the downgrading of the worth or value of, of groups of people based on some imagined racial, ethnic, or whatever characteristics. Um, Racism is most destructive when linked with social power and built into the organization of societies as it has been in our society. So we must reject all forms of racism. So there's three core convictions that I would go to the wall to defend. Let's try some more, okay? Next slide. Um, I've talked a little bit over these four weeks about money and property and possessions. My core conviction is that Um, We need to learn to try to value money, stuff, possessions the way that Jesus did, which is more instrumentally to accomplish the um, the basic purposes of life so that everybody has a chance at a decent life, but not to turn money and possessions into an idol, not to turn profit into an idol, not to compromise other values like the sacred worth of all in the insatiable pursuit of more. Okay? Um, On uh, sexuality, my fundamental conviction about sexuality uh, is that human sexual relationships are um, precious at their best when, when bounded by a covenant of mutual commitment, they give life. But when sexuality is treated exploitatively or when people's bodies are treated as a commodity to be used and used up, then sexuality becomes a predatory force in human life. So um, my primary value here is covenant in relation to sexuality. Um, On um, the issue of abortion, uh, the tradition has said from its beginning that, that the value of life begins at conception and that the casual resort to abortion has never been blessed in the history of Christian ethics. And so if we want to to think about what faithfulness looks like in this area, partly it involves covenantal and responsible sexuality, but it also involves creating structures in which unwanted pregnancies are as rare as possible, and therefore abortions are as rare as possible. Um, On marriage, uh, I think I said before that I stand with the Christian tradition in saying that a lifetime faithful monogamous marital relationship is the highest expression of interpersonal sexual covenant. Um, what, what makes my position out of keeping with a lot of the tra- tradition is I believe that marriage should be just as equally accessed uh, by uh, gay couples and lesbian couples as by straight couples. Um, and. Taking that stand in 2014 cost me a lot But it is the stand that I have embraced and um, I have I could defend it uh, and have many many times next slide Um, There's a lot of uh, ethics that is about the role of the state Um, Essentially what the Christian tradition says is that? um, government is needed to order Human relationships at societal or community levels, partly because humans are sinners, and if you had pure anarchy, people would take advantage and harm each other. So you need the state to um, to create laws and enforce them to rightly order the relationships within community. A central text on this is Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7. Um, the problem, though is that, and this has been a problem that has been understood in in moral theory from the beginning, is that the more powerful the state, the more the possibility that the state itself will become a threat to human life. Um, And so one reason to support democracy is so that the state flows up from the will of the people instead of down from the will of the tyrant. And. tyrannical rule is incredibly dangerous because it doesn't respond to the well-being of the people and all the, the violence that is at the hands of the state can then be used to harm people indiscriminately. And so actually my next book project um, is about democracy and I'm going to make a fresh case for democracy because I think we're seeing today tyrannical power unchecked by real democracy is one of the most dangerous forces in the world. Um, uh, One of the things that happened in Russia was they had the opportunity around the year 2000 to choose democracy, and a lot of Russians are Democrats in that sense. And democracy was snatched away over the last 20 years, and now we have one-man rule. And this is kind of what you get with one-man rule. Um, A major theme in the Christian moral tradition is violence should be strictly limited. Um, Some Christians say there should never be any support for any kind of violence on the part of Christians or Christians supporting violence by anybody. At least the tradition says that violence should be strictly limited. Aggressive violence is always wrong. When aggressive violence is unleashed, then there need to be forces to deter it or push it back. Um, But the tradition says that that the destruction of human life, property, and community by violence is one of the worst things that happens on this planet and should be resisted. Um, and one way to resist it is to make a commitment to a peaceable and nonviolent life uh, individually. And and if you do have uh, a military or a police forces in a community, their violence should be strictly limited as well. Okay, And yet, you do need some forces of coercive strength to prevent Um, criminals or tyrants from doing things to innocent people. and That's the the paradox there. Um, So uh, medical ethics is a huge theme in ethics. Um, I argue towards the end of this book that compassionate care for people at the end of life is an absolute moral essential, Um, that People are almost never more vulnerable than when they are fading and dying in their health in the very last days. The Christian moral tradition has always called for compassionate care for the ill and dying and has offered a lot of it. Um, But the tradition has drawn a line, and I agree with this line, at actively assisting people in dying. So the line is something like this. When somebody is dying, we care for them to the end but we do not hasten them off to death. Now, not everybody believes that anymore, and so there are actually, even in our country, there are something like seven states that allow assisted suicide now, um, but Georgia is not one of them. And I've lived through this now uh, three times with the older generation, as well as done a lot of thinking about this. I think that line uh, that bans assisted suicide in Christian tradition is the right line. Um, And I'd be happy to talk about that. Any of these things, by the way, Jim, could be subject of a a whole month or whatever, right? Next slide. Um, The next to last chapter in the book talks about ministers. So now we're going to think about ministers. I'm one. Jeremy's one. Jim's one. So nothing hard here. Ministers must live exemplary lives. Ministers are held to account. Um, James says, let not many of you become teachers, for you will be held strictly to account. Um, ministers who blow up their lives, who, who make dramatic moral errors, that's possible, it can happen to anyone, but, but they bring whole communities down with them. And so the, the, the 24th chapter of the book emphasizes that ministers have a special moral responsibility and um, that churches must guard the ethics of their community carefully. Um, and also that part of what ministers do is to help Christians themselves be serious about the moral quality of their lives. Next slide. I, I, um, this gets us set up for the, the sermon later. Um, it was Kierkegaard who said, purity of heart is to will one thing. And um, the one thing we are supposed to will, I think, to want as Christians above all, is the life of following Jesus faithfully. Um, but John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. We do not easily follow one thing. We look around and we get distracted by other goals or other gods, even, you might say. Next slide. Um, I will argue in my sermon today that idolatry, not just bowing down before, you know, sculptures and statues and wood, but idolatry of the heart, in which we stop following and worshiping Jesus only, is a danger for all of us. And um, it's one of the things that makes following Jesus kind of hard. Probably the most <laughs> early, the earliest command, the first commandment. Worship the Lord your God and serve God only. Is there one more slide? Or is that it? Yeah, I'll close with this from Matthew 10. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake. We'll find it. This is the commitment that we have made if we once said, I accept Jesus as my Savior and my Lord.